And welcome back, everybody, to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey, uh, the producer, Benny. And uh, I'm here locally in the Seattle area, and we are still connecting in live to Palm Springs, where our wonderful, huggable host, Paul Casey, is joining us. Paul, how's it going on down there? Well, um, thank you for the huggable part. Hey, you are. Benny, I appreciate (laughs) that. Uh, How's it going down here? Well, the only major difference from last week is that when you walk outside now, Mm -hmm. almost everybody's wearing a mask. Yeah. I mean, the week before it was in stores. I noticed yesterday morning when I went for a bike ride and started walking around that everybody's walking around with masks now. Mm -hmm. And that's something new in the last 48 hours. And I think as we've talked before, it's like this is such a fluid changing situation something new happens every day how about seattle yeah it's pretty much the same thing uh the stations actually have done some promotional items and we've been given some as well and i know a lot of my friends who have been uh not working as much they've been kind of taking up some sewing activities or uh even my sister they've actually been making them at home so it's pretty cool to see that and you know we're just spreading spreading the love and trying to what are we doing trying to uh flatten out that curve exactly very strange times Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so in light of that, I think, Benny, last week I started thinking about self-employment. And as you know, I've written a few books on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, one is self-employment for you. Mm -hmm. And in that book, I was not trying to talk people into going into business or out of it. I was just trying to come up with a read-through that when people got through it, they would say, I can do this. Or they say, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And I got and have received inputs from both sides. And I'm very satisfied because... It's not for everybody. But um, one of the things I've developed over the years are the myths about going into business for yourself. And uh, I've developed eight of them. And I'd like to share that with the audience today. I'm going to run through them very quickly. But if we have time, Benny, if you want to have any clarification on any, that would be great. So let's start with the first one. Yep. And that is about entrepreneurs being huge risk takers. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe that's the case. I think most entrepreneurs are risk adverse. Um, we're not riverboat gamblers, and we don't start business on credit cards. We're methodical, disciplined, and focused for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I speak for other people in that arena too. Number two, most businesses fail because they are undercapitalized. I believe that many businesses fail in the beginning because they have too much money. People kind of shake their head on that one, but I strongly believe it. And we'll come back to that if you would like me to. Yeah, actually, we Number- can stop right there. Let's go back because I know in previous conversations you've had on the air is when you have other people's money, you usually kind of tend to be a little more loose with it. Whereas if, if it was with your money, you're a little more tight reins around, you know, the old pocketbook, so to speak. You know, Benny, you just told me something there. You listen to what I've been saying. And that, uh- that's very gratifying because you nailed it right there mm-hmm. because um, I started my business uh, taking $20,000 out of my home. Mm-hmm. Again, I could afford that mm-hmm. to lose that if I it happened, I could still stay in my home is what right. I'm saying. And it really matters that if you are taking it out of your own pocket, I strongly believe it, that will help propel you when times get difficult and they will. Right. And uh, But if it's your money, I'm, it, it means a lot more. There's more respect, more loyalty and uh, concern for it at that point. That is correct. Right. Myth number three, the first thing you must do is sit down and write a business plan that is incorrect. That's the last thing you want to do, because if you don't have a good business concept and you haven't thought it through, a business plan will not save you. And remember, it's just a plan. It's a marker. Mm -hmm. It's not something to be taken in gold. I think too much emphasis is put on business plans. Number four, the customer is always right. I don't believe this is true. 
um, that high maintenance customers can suck you dry in your energy. And um, they can also put you out of business. Mm-hmm. And I had two close calls along the way. But the good news here is that 90% of the customer's checks don't bounce. They're fine. So pursue the 90% of people who you don't have to worry about whether they pay their bills or they're ethical. Number five, uh, watch your competitors like a hawk. I believe that is, again, more of a myth, is that competitors are actually your best friends. And you want them to succeed because the industry then gets a boost up when you have, let's say, competitors that are not doing well and they get into trouble and people reading about it in the newspapers, your business will suffer as a result of that. So as far as like watching it like a hawk, I mean, you could be mindful of them, but not like, I mean, there's a lot of sharing involved with depending on what your business is around, right? Like we, everyone borrows some other idea or venture in that direction. But are you just saying just kind of back up just a little bit from just kind of noticing them from a distance rather than like on their doorstep? Well, I'm just saying, like, for example, when I started my business, I was actually publishing newspapers. Mm-hmm. And it was a pa- newspaper that I developed uh, directed to the older Americans called Voices of Experience. One of the things that happened when I started that newspaper, two other newspapers directed to that audience came into town. And there hadn't been any newspapers directed towards the older market. And we all started together. And I was really obsessively, I think, in the beginning, too much worried about what they were doing. And then I found after, oh gosh, maybe a year or two, that when I would call on a client, that if the client had a good experience, they would say, well, tell me about your paper. But if they had a bad experience, they didn't get any calls, then they would say, I'm not interested. Hmm. So I not only wanted to tolerate my client, I was became their cheerleader. I yeah. wanted them to do well. It made my job easier. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's go on to get everything in writing, mm-hmm. like a contract. Okay. I'm saying fine. I'm not advising you not do that, but do not take any comfort in that. If, for example, you need to go back to a contract and read it again, there's something wrong. Okay. You don't just do this because you have nothing else to do. And when you do that, you'll find that the words haven't changed, but now the interpretation has changed or the circumstances have changed. In most cases, the client at some point has severe cash flow problems or they're broke and that's why you're not getting paid. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of getting in line and maybe getting 10 cents on the dollar and or getting nothing. So contracts don't do you really good. And that will bring me back up to the customer and uh, the customer is uh, not always right and that you should really go out of your way to select ethical customers. Remember, this is a two-way relationship. You shouldn't always think yourself as being subservient to your customer. You have to do a good job for them. So just bottom line, find people who are ethical. And that's really not hard to do because, again, 90% of your customers are great. Always think positive thoughts. I believe that uh, as a owner of a business, it's important to project that you're positive. But every day, think worst case scenario. What could go wrong? And also think when you're designing a business, What could go wrong? What's the worst case scenarios? Now, I have been running my business for like 30 years now. I've been through like four major setbacks with the economy. 9-11, the dot-com bust, the 2008 real estate when that went under, and then now 2020. So that's about once every seven or eight years, there's major setbacks. 
I think you really have to think through what you will do when these things occur. Now, certainly what we're going through now, who could anticipate this? But on the other hand, we have been through some uh, other parts of the economy that have been interrupted. And I think this is why I've always preached in the, that you keep your overhead low. But that's what I think you really need to think about going into business for yourself. Put worst case scenarios in there because they will happen. Perfect. And uh, yeah, last and certainly not least, uh, number eight for the eight myths of self-employment, sir. You got it. And uh, follow your passion and the money will follow. Mm -hmm. This one, I continue to hear all the time. And every time I hear it, I kind of wince because it's just not true. And some of the best people in the business say that. I submit that if you are a true entrepreneur, what you want to do is find a niche and solve a problem. And let's just say a niche within a niche. And what I mean by that is that, for example, you want to go into construction, you want to build homes. Well, maybe your homes will be green homes. You'll stand out. Or maybe a niche within a niche would be building accessible homes for aging in place, something like that. I have a very good friend by the name of Thatch Nguyen, and he builds micro apartments. And he's doing quite well right now. But see, he thought that through. He just didn't build apartments. He built affordable apartments going back over a decade. And now these are very much in demand because of the high cost of uh, apartments around the Seattle area. So there we go. Those are the eight myths. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. The fact that he walked off that, that field for the last time to booze is really disheartening, and it, and it ruins a little bit of the relationship between fan and player. Because we all like to talk about ourselves. And, and I think that it's so important to listen. Listen to, to your team. Listen to your kids. That's Jerediah Collins, followed by Brad Taylor. Now, who was Jerediah referring to when he said, quote, that he walked off the field to the booze, end of quote. That person is Andrew Luck, quarterback, or actually more to the point, former quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. I asked Jerediah his take on Andrew Luck's controversial decision. Now, Jerediah and Andrew Luck have two things in common. One, they both played pro football, and two, they both walked away from the game in their prime. Also joining us, Brad Taylor, and he's the author of a book called Intentional Success, The Power of Entrepreneurism. If you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you'll know how near and dear going into business for yourself is to me, and Brad is a person who has a lot of experience in this field, so I'm really anxious to talk to him today. Now, my name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience, where we just simply talk to people with experience in their fields. If you'd like to talk to me personally, my phone number is 206-459-5536, 206-459-5536. Back with my interview with Jerediah Collins in just a moment. Andrew Luck, quarterback with the Indianapolis Colts jolted the pro football world and a lot of football fans with a surprise announcement that he was retiring from pro football. 
Some fans reacted with outrage. A lot of the fans at the game in which it was unveiled that he was retiring booed him while he was on the field, while others reacted with some degree of understanding because uh, the health of pro football players has become very widely questioned over the last couple of years. Now, Jeradiah Collins, he played pro football as well, and he was a fullback with the New Orleans Saints and a number of other teams along the way. He was also a fullback for the Washington State University Cougars. Now, the reason I talked to Jeradiah about this is that he walked away from the game as well. Not so dramatically, per se, but he did walk away from the game because he thought other priorities were more important. Now, Jeradiah now lives in Seattle with his family, and he's an executive with the Brighton Jones Wealth Management Firm. So I thought I would ask Jeradiah what he thought about the reaction to some of the fans and the TV and radio pundits about the retirement of Andrew Luck. You know, the, the feedback has been disappointing. As athletes, you try to identify yourself as more than the game. And as fans, you always kind of put us under this guidance that your appreciation is, is both us as, as a player, but then also as a person. Uh, the fact that he walked off that, that field for the last time to booze is really disheartening, and it, and it ruins a little bit of the relationship between fan and player. But the same three keys came across my mind, the first being that the pain is real. You wake up throughout the season, you're in a constant state of having survived a car crash, and it's a 48-hour process to rebuild, regain, and get ready to do it again. Um, And as that toll stacks up, as you begin to have serious injuries, as you begin to have unhealable parts to your body, you start to have a different account to what 100% really means. After your first major surgery, you're never really back to 100%. After the first day of training camp, you don't really even get back to close to 100% until February or March. So number one is the pain. Number two is respect for greatness. You arrive in the NFL. You have a mindset and a clarity around what your purpose is. Our purpose is to go be the best in the world. If at some point you start to look in the mirror and you realize you don't have that grind, you don't have that grit, or really just that wherewithal to go do it, you respect the game. You respect what that high caliberness takes too much to fake it. And Andrew Luck has been a top-tier player from college throughout his NFL career when he was healthy. He has tasted greatness. And I think there's a part of him that realizes what it would take to get back to that level And if he just didn't feel like he had it, he respected the game enough to walk away. The third piece to the puzzle is this relationship of risk to reward. We're asked at a very young age, why do you want to play the game? And the rewards are endless. You list them off right and left, and you know exactly what brings you out there. At some point in your career, that risk-reward relationship begins to balance out and even tilt in the other direction. And for a guy like Andrew Luck, who's financially survived, he is, uh, from a, a schooling perspective, he got his free education, and he has taken a lot of the fruit that this football game has, has been able to bear. You look at that and say, well, what were the best rewards left on the table for him compared to the risk? And that risk-reward measurement is a really neat one that he was able to identify and ultimately say, I think I can go and be the Andrew Luck I want to be without this game, without the game of football. I would have to think that as you were talking and 
about this and very well put. I mean, there's a lot of things that I learned from what you just said. And that is, who cares about these morons who sit in the stands, basically, and judge other <laughs> people? And they've probably not even taken a snap beyond flag football in their entire life. As a professional athlete, you can count an endless list of people who come up to you at a cocktail party and tell you about their playing days. I enjoy it because it is an appreciation of, of what we do. But there's also a lack of understanding around what it takes to get to that next level, what it takes to become a first-round draft pick, what it takes to become a Pro Bowl player, what it takes to be a Division One athlete is not just talent. It takes sacrifice. It takes discipline. It takes focus. The truth is the best talent is always at home. Sure. And, and being the third-string quarterback at Orton Hall in Pullman, I have a difficult time describing what that is, right? Uh, well, you dealt with adversity. I mean, there's a, a good principle you get to take away. <laughs> That's right. The, somebody pulled out the flag, and it kind of hurt my uh, shorts a little bit. But uh, anyhow, no, th- thank you for uh, saying that. And a lot of people have been critical about the Pac-12 and the level of competition and the TV revenue and all that. What are your thoughts now going forward? The Pac-12 has continually had good teams that have gotten beat within the conference, and that removes them from the national spotlight, national stage. We right now have five, six teams that are arguably going to be in that 10 to 25 category of the of the top teams in the country. But we need one to go the route and go unblemished and get into that top four category. Why the Pac-12 is consistently said is you aren't good enough is because you don't have one of those teams at the end that gets to play in the college football playoffs. We have some very, very good teams. We need an elite team to remove themselves from the pack and say, we're not only really good on the West Coast, we're not only really good in college football, but we're elite and can play with anyone. Yeah. But, you know, as a fan, you know, I was at the days back in the 70s and 80s when, you know, Washington State, for example, if we won two pack eight games or 10 games, we were thrilled, you know, for uh, much of the mm-hmm. season. But the fact that, you know, it is a conference where everybody can compete. And as you just said, I think you said five teams could be in the top 25. I think that's a really good thing, though, for the game. I mean, I like the fact that I can go to Pullman or on the road and see the team and they got a shot at every game now. We couldn't say that 20 years ago. No, not at all. The, the level of competition has definitely risen, uh, but the level of expectation has risen along with that. What a successful season is. You look even close to home in Pullman, no longer are we saying, hey, let's just get some wins and go to a bowl game. That's no longer acceptable as success for the year. We're saying we want a Pac-12 title. We want to go to a Rose Bowl. We want to compete on that higher, higher stage. Because the game has become such a business, mediocrity is no longer acceptable, much like it is is in in the corporate setting. Nobody is okay with just being okay. Everybody wants more and wants the next. Uh, It's been really neat to see the game take these steps and these levels. But once again, you need, whether it's a company or a, a conference or a team, You need somebody to separate themselves and say, this is the new gold bar. This is the standard. We all measure ourselves again. It's been Alabama for the recent history. Clemson is starting to argue to take that title. Um, And as you do have a program like that that just separates itself amongst really good opponents, that is when the respect is given. That is when the respect is earned and demanded. Um, And so it it will be neat to see the Pac-12 continue to unfold especially as USC is kind of that sixth 
team on the outside of the top 25 conversation, um, it will be really neat to see how we take a national stance. Everybody wants to hype up Oregon. Uh, I will be interested to see if they're able to uh, actually rise to those expectations. My thanks to Jerediah Collins, now executive with Brighton Jones Wealth Management Firm, based in Seattle. Brad Taylor has joined me, and he's the author of a book called Intentional Success, The Power of Entrepreneurism. I first wanted to ask Brad, why and how did he become an entrepreneur? That's a great question, Paul, because uh, I think I've been an entrepreneur all my life from the time I was, you know, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old, having paper routes and then starting a landscaping business, etc. I mean, I think that it was in my DNA. And so you really thought that you wanted to be this your whole life. That's interesting because I had a paper route as well. You became an entrepreneur, but I never made that connection. I used to go to the library and read about you know, entrepreneurs and, and just people, inventors. And all my siblings thought I was crazy. But in the 45 plus years that I've been working, you know, other than five years of working for someone who is my first true mentor, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. And I think it was hard when, uh, when my wife and I got married in the, uh, in the uh, in the late 80s early 90s you know she was a registered nurse and so it was a whole different mindset because she was an employee she had that employee mentality and here she's marrying an entrepreneur and we kind of talk about that in my book intentional success of of marrying an entrepreneur yeah i had a very similar circumstance but you know it's interesting your i guess path to it was different than mine and you say this is something you wanted to do pretty early on in your life and um, this is something that I backdoored my way into I mean I worked for the government I worked for private enterprise and then I worked for the government again I started a nonprofit etc and I was kind of out of options it never really occurred to me to be an entrepreneur but what the next choice was was living on a park bench so I thought I would give this a shot now I had those I guess, desires to be that I really wanted to run my own organization. But again, it was very late for me in terms of wanting to do this. Do you find that with other people, both sides of the uh, equation, when you talk to them? You really have to be willing to just take that leap of faith and believe enough in yourself and have that confidence to make that decision and if you do make that decision to become an entrepreneur, you cannot have an option B because the people that have an option B typically will fail because they have that safety net to go back to when adversities and challenges and struggles, uh, you know, face you. And uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it takes a real special person, but I will tell you this. I read something recently that 40% of the Americans by the year, I think it's 2021 or something, will be entrepreneurs in some way, shape, or form. Um, either they'll have a second business where they're still working the traditional business, but that entrepreneurship, I think, is growing leaps and bounds. 
And I couldn't agree with you more about that plan B, not to have that. You have to throw that out the door because there are certain times you're going to hit and you're going, why am I doing this? And if you have that safety net, as you said, you probably will take it. Yeah, and it was really hard for my wife when she when we got married because here she's marrying somebody that has been an entrepreneur basically all his life, and she 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 liked that that comfort zone. But I will tell you this: it wasn't even six years after we were married that we talked and we said, "Look, if we're really going to accomplish our goals together." you know, we need to work together. And she was a pediatric nurse. So basically she gave up her license that she worked so hard to get and we never looked back. Similar circumstance with my wife, but a little different angle. She was working for corporate America. And one of the reasons that she was attracted to me was because I was an entrepreneur and she felt that that sort of trajectory led me to be a a different type of person, which she was attracted to. I think that entrepreneurs bring a whole different mindset, not just, you know, I think to the whole family atmosphere, because I think your kids, as they watch you, have a different appreciation for what you do. And all of our kids over the years have watched us work really hard and have some struggles and have some successes, obviously. And... I think they have a better appreciation for um, what we do because nothing's handed to you. And that's how we've tried to raise our kids over the years. You have a outline that is uh, says about 12 intangibles to success. And there's 12 of them. We can't get all through those. And so as I read your 12 intangibles of success, one of those is relatability. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I think that today we all no matter whether we're in the professional arena or we're just a husband or a a dad or mom, we have to listen more. And we can't be so quick to come to an opinion or, or I, I, you know, my wife always points out to me that, you know, we're in an atmosphere where, where I'm meeting someone or we're talking to, to friends or, or, or business associates and, and someone is telling me a story and I really, really relate to that story. So I start to inject my two cents into the story because I can really relate to what they're saying. And my wife would always say, Brad, it's not about you and your stories. It's about them and the stories they're sharing. And I, and I, I just, I love to use that analogy because we all like to talk about ourselves. And I think that it's so important to listen, listen to, to your team, listen to your kids, listen to your wife, your spouse, your significant other. And, and because at the end of the day, we can get so much more accomplished and we can really understand truly what someone's saying by listening and just, just responding with small little tidbits of questions or comments. And I think, you know, it's human nature just to talk. And I think that's really what you, relatability is. It's, it's having that communication skill. Very interesting. There's an article in the New York Times this morning called Listening. You should read it because it says exactly what you just said. 
Thank you, Brad. I appreciate your time again. That's Brad Taylor, and he's the author of a book called Intentional Success, The Power of Entrepreneurism. You know, sometimes I think it's easier to run your own business than to say entrepreneurism. Some truly inspiring words. Paul, thank you so much for joining the show today from Palm Springs. Thanks, Benny, for helping me out as usual and wear a mask. And for you folks out there, thanks for listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. My name is Benny Mathers, Voices of Experience producer. And if you would like to get in touch with Paul, you can call him or text him at 206-459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. We'll catch you next week.